Well, thank you for that great introduction. And it has been a lot of years since Doug and I first got to know each other, and we uh, are great friends. Is anybody here from Minnesota? I know there are a couple people. Amen. Amen. It's great. It's great. I bring you uh, greetings from Minneapolis. When I left the airport, when we left uh, two days ago to come out here, it was 30 degrees and snowing like crazy. So I'm really excited to be here. This is my first time to uh, be in uh, California, so I'm really looking forward to the time that I'm going to be here with you. And I'll be in several classes today. If you have any questions on what we're going to be talking about, feel free to uh, uh, ask me any time. When we study history and archaeology, we need to remember that it is of tremendous help to us in studying the Bible. There are a number of things that the study of history can do for you in the study of the scriptures. And one thing is to show the accuracy of the scriptures. You know, it's uh, many times said by people that uh, the scriptures are not accurate and so on, but that is absolutely untrue. I bring you testimony from all the years I've studied this material that nothing has ever been shown in the scriptures to be inaccurate. A lot of things we don't know anything about, but it's never been shown to be wrong. And let me just give you a real quick illustration of that. If you remember the book of Daniel, you remember back in the days of Daniel the prophet, remember how there was a king by the name of Belshazzar who saw the handwriting on the wall and all that, and then the city of Babylon fell? Um, for years, scholars used to say that there was no such person as Belshazzar. Absolutely untrue. They didn't have any evidence that this man ever lived. Well, there was a, a scholar, a fellow by the name of Doherty, and Doherty used to travel around the country, and he made a career out of knocking that particular passage of scripture in Daniel chapter 5. He said, there was no such person as Belshazzar, never lived, and the Bible's all wet. Well, in the early 1900s, they uh, discovered inscriptions that talked about King Belshazzar. And uh, I think the Lord has a sense of humor. I really do believe that, because Doherty was the one who wrote the book on the subject. He actually wrote a book saying that he had been wrong, the Bible was right, there was a king of Babylon by the name of Belshazzar. But the interesting thing is that after the book was published, he went out and rented a room in a YMCA and blew his brains out. He could not stand to admit that he'd been wrong and that the Bible was right. Well, anyway, the Bible uh, is many times shown to be historically accurate by archaeology, but there are other uses, too. And these are some of the things we're going to get into this morning and Wednesday. And by the way, Wednesday morning, you'll want to be here for sure. I don't know how many chapel cuts you're allowed uh, here at uh, Masters, but you want to be sure you're here Wednesday because I'm going to show my slides on Wednesday. And um, I say that uh, I say this uh, truthfully, you'll not get a chance to see slides like this uh, that are taken on-site for the most part. A few of them are out of books, but not many. Uh, I took these in Egypt, went into stuff that you wouldn't be able to get in if you went over there as a tourist or on any kind of tour. I don't care who you went with. You wouldn't be able to get into the things I was able to as an archaeologist. So this will be all bearing on the scriptures. So Wednesday we'll have slides in chapel. But anyway, uh, we want to look at how the scriptures, or how archaeology rather, helps us to understand what's going on in the Old Testament. Particularly, what we're going to look at this morning is the story of Joseph. So archaeology and history really helps us to appreciate that. We'll be turning in just a minute to some passages in Genesis and look at that. But I think another thing that archaeology and history can do for you that's very important is that they can make the Bible come alive. They can really take the characters of the scriptures who are there in black and white for us to see, and they can bring it out into living color. And you get to appreciate what's going on and that these are real people living in a real historical period. 
So I think it is important to know something about the history. Now, what we want to do this morning is to look at just a few things in the time that we have from the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis. And, of course, I'm sure all of you realize that a whole big chunk of the book of Genesis is dedicated to the life of Joseph from chapter 39 all the way through the end of the book in about the 50th chapter. And I want to examine some of those things with you this morning and show you how recent archaeological work, and I mean really recent, some of the things I'm going to refer to this morning uh, have only been known uh, for a matter of several months, maybe a year or two years at the most. So we're really going to get some recent archaeological material here. I want to show you how this bears on the story of Joseph. Obviously, we can't deal with the entire story. I'd love to do that with you, but we'll do that some other time. But turn with me this morning to Genesis chapter 39. And let me set the stage for you here as we uh, begin to talk about Joseph a little bit. You remember what happened to him. You remember how he was sold as a slave into Egypt. And his own brothers are the ones who sold him into slavery. They were jealous of him. They were insanely jealous of him because he was their father's favorite, as you recall. So he's sold into slavery in Egypt. And while he's down there, he has a lot of adventures. A lot of things happened to him that uh, were not fun. Some of the things were, but others were not. Uh, you remember that he is bought by a man called Potiphar. And Potiphar is a high official in the Egyptian government, and I believe this would be a period of Egyptian history called the Middle Kingdom. This would be Dynasty 12. And sometime I can show you why I believe that, or you can take a look at my book, which is in your library. Uh, but uh, the Bible chronology, the Bible numbers, argue very clearly that it would be during the time of King Sesostris II and Sesostris III of Dynasty 12. That would be about the 1800s B.C., about 200 years after Abraham. Well, anyway, he is bought by this man called Potiphar, and eventually... Uh, he becomes the steward of Potiphar's household. He becomes the head person there. And I think God is training him for the future task that he has for him. Remember how Joseph will uh, take care of the Hebrews during the time of famine. There's a famine that goes over the whole Near East, and Joseph is going to make sure that his own family survives. Well, he's steward of Potiphar's household. And then you remember what happens? Potiphar's wife accuses him. Uh, she accuses him, actually, of rape. And he's thrown into prison. And after he's put into prison for quite a few years, remember the Pharaoh has a dream and uh, Joseph is brought out of prison and interprets that dream for the Pharaoh and then becomes a high official in the Egyptian government. And we'll get into some of the aspects of this. Now, I want to look at some illustrations with you of how archaeology helps us to better understand what's going on. A number of years ago, uh, probably about 40 years ago now, a man by the name of William C. Hayes. Now, you've probably never heard of William C. Hayes. He's dead now, but he was, uh, in the 1950s, he was one of the leading American Egyptologists. And he worked out of the Brooklyn Museum in New York City. And he discovered a piece of papyrus in Egypt. And it was brought to that museum where it is today. And you know how in ancient Egypt they tended to uh, write on stone a lot. They wrote hieroglyphics on stone, but they also wrote on papyrus, which is their form of paper. Well, anyway, this particular papyrus was a real interesting one because on one side of it, and it comes from the Middle Kingdom, by the way, it comes right at the time of Joseph, on one side of it is a discussion of people who were slaves in Egypt from Syria, Palestine, and all kinds of things about them, what jobs they could have and all of that sort of thing. And what is interesting about this, even though it does not mention Joseph, uh, what is interesting about it is that 
as this thing talks about these slaves, do you know what the number one job that an Asiatic, and by Asiatic, of course, we don't mean somebody from East Asia. When we use the term in Egyptology, we mean somebody from up in Syria, Palestine. Uh, but it says that a slave from, Asia, from the Asiatic countries, from up in, in what would today be Israel, mainly, or even farther north in Syria, a person, particularly a male, who's brought into Egypt, the number one job, the most common job he could have, was to be a household servant. And what was Joseph? He's a household servant. So this shows us the accuracy of the scriptures. You see, this is not something, you read the book of Genesis, this is not something that was written by someone much, much later, centuries later. Uh, this was something written by someone who was extremely familiar with the facts. When Moses wrote the book of Genesis, he knew exactly what had gone on. And the Egyptian coloring is, is rich and detailed and correct all the way through the Joseph story. But anyway, Joseph is uh, brought down and he gets sold into uh, slavery uh, in Egypt. But uh, he would have been a household servant, and that's just what this papyrus says. Now, one other thing about this papyrus that Hayes discovered and published. If you flip it over... On the back side of the papyrus is a discussion of Egyptian prisons. Again, something that fits beautifully into examining the Joseph story. Now, I have to tell you something about Egyptian prisons uh, here. Today, we think of prisons very commonly in, in the world. We think of them as the average place or the, the usual place where criminals are put. Um, Today, uh, I suppose, if you commit a small offense, they'll charge you a fine. But if you commit a major offense, uh, hopefully, if you commit a uh, murder or something like that, they're going to put you in prison. Now, that is something that is peculiarly modern and peculiarly Western. Back in the ancient Near Eastern world, prisons, like we have them today, did not exist. And so, someone writing the book of Genesis, if they were unfamiliar with Egypt, they wouldn't know anything about prisons. But the fact is, ancient Egypt is the one country in the Near East that had prisons. And this papyrus tells us all about how they were organized, and it tells us all about the officials that ran them, and what jobs you could have there, and it all fits very nicely with the account of Joseph. Let me just give you one example of what I'm talking about. There are two examples. When you went into prison in ancient Egypt, you didn't go in for three years or five years or ten years or fifteen years. They only had one sentence, and that was life without parole. They put you in and they throw away the key. So you can understand how Joseph would have been extremely frightened and depressed when he was thrown into prison because he's not there for a short period of time. He's there for good. See, if the Lord hadn't uh, worked, uh, Joseph uh, could have spent the rest of his life. He's about 30 or so. When he goes into prison, he would have spent the rest of his days there. Now, another kind of person that was put into prison in ancient Egypt would be people who are awaiting the decision of the king as to what to do with them. Sometimes they didn't know whether a person was guilty or innocent, and they would put them into prison, and the king would later make a decision. Now, that papyrus tells us this, and that's exactly what we see in the Word of God. It's exactly what we see. Do you remember how he's down there, Joseph is in prison, and do you remember how he meets two men, the king's cupbearer and the king's baker, are thrown into prison. Now, some of the older Bible translations give that as butler and baker. Uh, I kind of don't like that butler, because uh, when we think of butler, you know, we think of one of these British guys with a tuxedo that answers the doorbell. You know, um, That's not what this guy is. This guy is the king's cupbearer. He's in charge of all the beverages that the king uh, receives. But anyway, Joseph meets these two guys, and they are evidently waiting for the king to make some kind of decision. 
and uh, they have dreams. And Joseph said, oh, I can interpret your dreams for you. And it wasn't because of his brilliance. It was because of the Lord. But Joseph says to the cupbearer, your dream means you'll be restored to office. The baker, your dream means you're going to be executed. And both dreams came true. So the cupbearer, or the butler, gets restored to office, but forgets about Joseph, and the baker gets killed. So the king makes the decision. But all that kind of thing, the way people were put in prison, the reasons they were put into prison, the jobs you could hold in prison, all that is on this papyrus that Hayes uh, discovered and published. So very interesting thing. But let's take a look at something else. Let's take a look at a couple verses here in Genesis chapter 39. Let's go back before the time Joseph was in prison. And let me begin reading with the third verse of Genesis 39. I want to read you verses 3, 4, and 5 here and show you uh, something of what's going on. Now his master, that's Potiphar, saw that the Lord was with him and how the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and, because, and became his personal servant and he made him overseer over his house and all that he owned he put in his charge. Note that phrase, overseer over his house. I don't know if you're writing anything down, but if you want to underline that phrase, overseer of his house, it means he was the steward of Potiphar. You know, in ancient Egypt, you were not paid a salary in money for doing government service. They didn't have money like we did, like we do today. Uh, what you received for holding a government job uh, was basically some land, an agricultural estate. And that is what you needed a steward for. You needed a person, if you were one of these officials, you needed a steward to run the estate because you were too busy with other things, with your job, with your responsibilities. So here we see Joseph becoming the steward of Potiphar. And notice the accuracy as we go on to the fifth verse. And it came about that from the time he made him overseer in his house and over all that he owned, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house on account of Joseph. Thus, the Lord's blessing was upon all that he owned. Now, I want you to underline this last part of the verse here. The Lord's blessing is upon all that he owned in the house and in the field. Now, obviously, if he's the steward of the house, uh, the Lord is going to uh, bless him for things that go on in the house. But the key words here are in the field. You see, someone writing this who had no knowledge of ancient Egypt wouldn't know uh, the duties of a steward. But a steward was primarily in charge of agriculture, because that's the source of wealth of ancient Egypt and the source of wealth uh, for a man like Potiphar. So we see here that uh, Joseph was indeed in charge of all the farming of the country. Joseph is in charge of the crops. So everything fits exactly with what we would know uh, of Egyptian history. Well, as we said uh, a while back, Joseph was falsely accused by Potiphar's wife. And he was tossed into that Egyptian prison, the great prison, as it was called in this papyrus that I mentioned to you. And he spent quite a bit of time in prison. And the cupbearer, who was restored to office, forgot all about Joseph. But then do you remember what happened? You remember how the pharaoh of Egypt, the king of Egypt, who would be, I believe at this time, King Sesostris II of Egypt's 12th dynasty. This particular king had a series of dreams himself. And he was perplexed. He didn't know what to do. He didn't know what these dreams meant. He had no concept of what was going on. And nobody could tell him the meaning of the dreams. Then, all of a sudden, the cupbearer remembered. He said, I remember. There's a man, a Hebrew, down in that prison. And he can interpret dreams. And so the Pharaoh said, well, get him up here. I need to have these dreams interpreted. 
So Joseph, in chapter 41 of Genesis, and turn over with me to the 41st chapter, Joseph is sent for. Joseph is brought to uh, the Pharaoh. Now, I want to show you something here. Before we get to his actual meeting with Pharaoh, I want to show you something in verse 14 of Genesis 41. Now, as I tell you this, or before I show you something in this verse, people who are non-believers in the historical accuracy of the scriptures generally will want to tell you that Joseph was in Egypt, if they believe in Joseph at all. They will tell you he was in Egypt during a later period of history called the Hyksos period. Now, in the Hyksos period, people from Syria, Palestine, Canaanites, we call them biblically, were ruling Egypt. And uh, a lot of people think that Joseph would be there during that time. That would be about 200 years later than the Bible would have him there. Uh, that would place Joseph there in about the 1600s B.C. Well, the fact is that this verse that I'm going to show you, the 14th verse of chapter 41, refutes that very well. Look at what verse 14 says. Then Pharaoh sent and called for Joseph, and they hurriedly brought him out of the dungeon. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came to Pharaoh. Now, I want you to notice two things about that particular verse. Well, even let's look at a third thing. First of all, they're in a hurry to get him up there. They want to get him up before the Pharaoh. Now, if this were a Canaanite Pharaoh, Joseph's state of cleanliness would be meaningless. It wouldn't matter because uh, the people of Canaan who were ruling Egypt at that time, the Hyksos, had no scruples about cleanliness or beards or mustaches or anything like that. But the native Egyptians did. The native Egyptians did not like to see facial hair on a person. In fact, if you look at Egyptian paintings, you will almost never see an Egyptian with a beard or a mustache. You see him wearing these little false beards, you know, these long, thin things. The pharaoh wears that, but that's a false beard. They put it on with a little string. It's not real. Uh, but the fact is that the average Egyptian did not have facial hair, and they were very much dedicated to cleanliness. I mean, they even beat modern-day Americans. Most uh, ancient Egyptian priests, for example, took a bath about five times a day. Of course, you've got to realize this is a soapless society, so maybe you would need uh, that many baths uh, in that time. Uh, but the fact is that look at what Joseph does. He shaves himself and changes his clothes. Two very significant things. Showing that the pharaoh he's going to go before is a native Egyptian king. This man is not a foreigner. He's not a Canaanite. It wouldn't matter if he had been a Canaanite. But cleanliness and getting a shave meant something. So we have some evidence here scripturally that this king is indeed a king who was an Egyptian, not just some person ruling as a pharaoh who was a foreigner. Well, in any case, Joseph is brought before the king. Now, remember what happens. Remember, he is able to tell the king exactly what that dream means. He says, here's what it means. And, and this wasn't because of Joseph's brilliance. This was from God, of course. Joseph says that the dream means that there are going to be seven years of plenty. Seven years when the, the country, the, uh, the harvest in the country will be fantastic and they'll have all the food they want. And he said that will be followed then by seven years of awful famine. So he tells what the dream is going to mean. Now, the pharaoh is perplexed by this. He says, what can we do? Uh, this doesn't sound good at all. And Joseph said, well, I've got a suggestion for you. Joseph says, during the seven years of plenty, 
when the crops are really producing, he said, just take what you need to eat, but store up the rest. Put that into granaries and use it to feed people during the years of famine. And the pharaoh says, that's a great idea. In fact, the pharaoh says, that's such a brilliant idea, I'm going to put you in charge of doing it. And so we find that Joseph now, from being a prisoner that very day, is suddenly vaulted up to prominence uh, in, uh, in Egypt. He has gone from being a prisoner to being one of the leading people in Egyptian society. What a change. Can you imagine something like that? I can't even imagine uh, you know, getting called by the President of the United States uh, and being asked anything. I mean, that just doesn't, uh, doesn't seem like it's a possibility, let alone if I were in prison. But here he comes out of prison, and now he's going to become a leading official in the Egyptian government. Now, I want to show you something. Turn over a couple pages, and let's look at the ceremony involved in his promotion to high office. We're still in Genesis 41, and we want to look at uh, verse 40, beginning with verse 40. Now, let me read two or three verses here, and then I want to show you what's going on. And I'm going to show you some uh, overlays here that will, I think, help you uh, also to understand this uh, a little better. Beginning in verse 40. You shall be over my house, and according to your command, all my people shall do homage. Only in the throne I will be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took off his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put the gold necklace around his neck. And he had him ride in the second chariot, and they proclaimed before him, Bow the knee, and he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, verse 44, Pharaoh said to Joseph, Though I am Pharaoh, yet without your permission, no one shall raise his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh named Joseph zaphnath paniah and gave him Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, as his wife. And Joseph went forth over the land of Egypt. And we're told he's 30 years old when this took place. So here we see Joseph is promoted to high office. Now, I want you to notice two things about his promotion here. Um, in verse 40, notice that he is made uh, the one who is over Pharaoh's house. That's just like he was with Potiphar. You remember how we saw a few minutes ago he was the steward of Potiphar? Well, now he's going to become chief steward of the entire land, head of all the agriculture of Egypt. Very, very significant job. But more than that, we see also here that he is going to become second person in charge of the whole country. Uh, it says that he's going to become the one over Pharaoh's house. And uh, Pharaoh also says that you'll have command over all my people and only in the throne will I be greater than you. He said, I'm the only one in the country that's going to outrank you, Joseph. You are really in charge. So Joseph here is promoted to high office. Now, he is also given a number of items here. Now, um, I want to show you something here on the screen in a second. Uh, the ring and the robes, we really don't know much about. People have come up with all kinds of theories about these things, but they're only theories. Um, but what is really important here, the significant item he is receiving, is the gold necklace or the gold chain to wear around his neck. And I want to show you... Um, what that ceremony would look like. If you look at this picture from an Egyptian tomb, notice on the right-hand side of that picture is an official being given a gold chain to wear around his neck. And this is an extremely common kind of scene uh, in ancient Egypt. Um, 
as a reward for services rendered. Now, let me tell you a little story about this. A number of years ago, a friend of mine, uh, who uh, or I might say acquaintance, we're not really close friends, but uh, a man by the name of Donald B. Redford uh, wrote a book on the Joseph story. Now, Redford, you have to understand who he is. He's professor of Egyptology at the University of Toronto in Canada, and he is probably, if you take the whole field of Egyptology, if you take my field, uh, he is probably uh, right now number one on the North American continent. Probably nobody knows more about ancient Egypt than he does. But every time he writes a book, he attacks the Bible every time he, he gets a chance. He is no believer at all. Um, and I'll tell you another story about that maybe if I have time in a minute. But Redford wrote a book on the story of Joseph. I don't know if you have that book in your library or not. But uh, Redford wrote this book. And in the book, he tells about his research. He said, I gathered up. He said, every single example that there is of someone receiving a gold chain in ancient Egypt. And he has about 40 or 50 of them listed there in his book. And I checked out his references. He is absolutely correct with what he says. He gathered up all these examples of scenes just like this that you have on the screen where somebody is receiving a gold chain. And he says, in no case is it ever connected with promotion to high office. It is always simply a reward for services rendered, but it's not part of a promotion ceremony. So he's real proud of himself and says the Bible's wrong here. Uh, we have an example of the Bible being completely incorrect. Now, his evidence is accurate. His conclusion is also accurate uh, so far as it goes. He is right. I checked out every reference that he's got, and it is not promotion. It is rewarding. But what he has neglected to realize is that in this particular passage of Scripture, both things are happening. You have the promotion of Egypt, of uh, Joseph rather, to high office in Egypt, and then after the promotion, he's being rewarded as well for all this. He's being given a wife, for example. Uh, that's a reward in, in Egypt. He's being given a chariot. See, this is not part of the promotion. Really, you ought to read this passage of Scripture as two separate events taking place. Look at how it goes. Uh, verse 40, You shall be over my house, and according to your command, all my people shall do homage. Only in the throne I will be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Period. End of promotion. That is the ceremony of promotion right there. And then in the next verses, even though he'll go back and summarize the promotion again, in the next verses, he's rewarding Joseph for uh, what he uh, has done. So really, there's nothing wrong with this scene uh, at all. Joseph here is being rewarded by being given the uh, chain to wear around his neck. Now, let me tell you an interesting story about my friend Dr. Redford. You know, he, as I said, in all of his books, if you read his books, and uh, there are several of them out there, Redford is always blasting away at the Bible. Every time he gets a chance, he attacks the scriptures. One time I was excavating in Egypt, and our expedition was uh, really having a tough time health-wise. We were living at a hotel in Egypt, and if, you, if you're familiar with Egypt at all, you know that uh, this is not your paradise for food. I mean, if you're looking for good food, forget Egypt. You know, it is not the place to go. And I can tell you a lot of stories about, uh, about that. But we, we were excavating. We are eating at a hotel. Redford is across uh, in uh, Karnak Temple, which is a big temple there in, in the city of Luxor, Egypt. And he's got a cook who he has trained. They're not eating at the local hotel. But this cook is uh, trained to do things like wash his hands before he cooks food, things like that, some of the basics. Well, anyway, 
Dr. Redford one night invited our expedition, just as a courtesy, we were a University of Minnesota expedition, he was a University of Toronto Canadian expedition, and in, uh, in, in uh, the interests of good international uh, scholarly camaraderie, he invited us over for dinner, and he had us, I mean, we were drooling, he said, we're going to have roast beef, and we're going to have mashed potatoes and gravy, I mean, we hadn't seen anything like that uh, for the whole summer. We were there excavating in 120 degree heat, and we were eating stuff like scrambled eggs with wire in them, and uh, you know, really awful stuff. You know, and we were sick constantly. All of us were, were sick, and so he built up this great uh, picture of of a, of a modern uh, Western style meal. So we went over to his uh, headquarters one night for dinner, and we had a very good meal. But after we ate, we were sitting there talking. We were discussing things archaeological. And uh, Redford is uh, a pretty casual guy, pretty friendly when you uh, get to know him. And so I had a chance to ask him. I said, Dr. Redford, can you answer a question for me? He said, sure. What do you want to know? And he said, I said to him, your books, when you write them, they're always attacking the Bible. I said, what have you got against the Bible? I mean, why are you doing this? What? Now, you have to remember, the scholarly world thinks his purpose is to be an objective scholar. The scholarly world thinks that uh, Redford has just researched all this stuff and he's just found that the Bible is a bunch of nonsense. They think it's, it's legitimate, honest scholarship. Well, Redford said, you want me to tell you why? He said, I'll tell you why. He said, it has really nothing to do with academics. It has nothing to do with scholarship. And I said, it doesn't. He said, no. He said, here's the reason. He said, I was born and raised in Toronto, Canada, and my family attended Jarvis Street Baptist Church in Toronto, Canada. And he said, my father was dedicated to that church. And he said, I hated it. He said, my father dragged me there for Sunday school, Sunday morning, Sunday night service, Wednesday night service. And he said, I hate my father, I hate the Bible, and I hate God, and that's why I write the book. Now, you see, you're never going to hear anything like that in any scholarly reviews or anything uh, like that. Now, you'll never hear the truth of it, but that's the truth of it. But anyway, he was right with his evidence, getting back to, to Joseph here, he was right with his evidence, but he was wrong with, uh, I think, with the conclusions that he drew uh, from it. Now, let me show you something else. Turn over a few more pages to Genesis chapter 45. I want to show you the titles that Joseph had as a high official in Egypt. And the key verse for this is Genesis 45, verse 8. Genesis 45, verse 8. Joseph here is speaking to his brothers, and you know it's a. There's so many wonderful practical lessons in the story of Joseph, and uh, one of the great lessons is his forgiveness of his brothers. You, you realize Joseph was in a position when he was in power, when he saw his brothers coming down. Isn't this the classic "I'll get even" kind of scene? You know, here he is, a big shot in the Egyptian government, and in comes. Uh, the family that sold him into slavery. Now, he could have snapped his fingers and had them all executed without any question. He didn't have to give them a trial. He didn't have to answer to anybody. He could have had them all killed. But Joseph is a forgiving individual, and he forgives his brothers for their great sin of selling him down there into slavery and wishing him dead. Tremendous story. But anyway, he's talking to them here in the eighth verse of Genesis 45, and look at what he says. Now, therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He, he says this is all in God's plan, in other words. But here come three titles. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his household and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Three titles that he received uh, given here. The first one, 
father to Pharaoh is a sort of title meaning elder statesman, like we would use that term. You know, today if a man is president of the United States or a senator for a long time and so on, uh, we sometimes call that person an elder statesman. That's what father to Pharaoh is all about. Now, that's an interesting phrase because without some knowledge of Egyptian history, you couldn't figure out what that means. Here's a real good example for you of why you ought to know basic Egyptian history if you're interested in interpreting the Word of God because you couldn't understand that phrase. Obviously, it does not mean he was literally the father of the Pharaoh. Obviously not. It has a different meaning. Uh, so that's uh, that's uh, one title he receives. And, and by the way, when I was doing my doctoral work at the University of Minnesota, what I did my doctoral dissertation on, you know, I have to rate this thing, it's about a book in length, what I did was a study of over 130 officials of ancient Egypt from a time period a little later than the days of, of, uh, of uh, Joseph. But I found lots of important officials who had this very same title. It's a title that doesn't have any duties with it. It's just an honorary kind of title. But it's a real Egyptian title. But look at what else. He says, Lord of all his household. That's chief steward of the king. Chief steward of the king. And then, uh, thirdly, ruler over all the land of Egypt. Now, people have debated what that means, but I think it's very clear. Ruler over all the land of Egypt, the person that is second in command of the Pharaoh, what it means is prime minister, or uh, we like to sometimes use the Arabic word for that, vizier, V-I-Z-I-E-R, but it means prime minister. So I think here, as far as functions are concerned, as far as actual duties are concerned, we've got two jobs that Joseph is holding here. Uh, we have uh, the job of chief steward of the king, and we have the job of vizier or prime minister. Now, let me talk to you about this combination of titles for just uh, a couple minutes. Uh, you know, today there are a lot of titles that a person just doesn't combine. You don't hold both of them. Um, for instance, if someone were to come up and ask you, uh, who is Bill Clinton? Well, uh, would you answer, well, I know who Bill Clinton is. He's president of the United States, and he's governor of Arkansas. No, he's not both. You are either one or the other. Or if someone were to come up to you and ask uh, who Pete Wilson is, you, you would not say, well, he's governor of the state of California, and he's senator from California. No, you're either one or the other. You're either the governor of California or one of the two senators from California. You're not both. If someone were to come up to me and say, where do you teach? I wouldn't tell them, well, I'm professor of history at Northwestern College and I'm professor of history at Wheaton College. You know, no, I'm one or the other, and I happen to be professor of history at Northwestern College. Well, the same thing is true with these two titles. You would not hold both. You would not hold the title chief steward of the king and prime minister. Too much work to do. They are separate jobs. They're totally separate titles. Well, knowing that, and also being very interested in this whole business of Joseph, I set about here, maybe a, a year or so ago, I set about to research these titles a little bit. And I found that nobody had done it in relation to Joseph. And in fact, in the period we're looking at, the Middle Kingdom period of Egyptian history, nobody had done much, really, with the, with the uh, titles at all. And uh, I found that there was a German book published back around 1900, and that had some information about prime ministers during this period, but nothing really up to date. 
But in about uh, 1970 or 75, some scholars had begun to gather together the names of some of the prime ministers during this period. Nobody had really done this until then. Now, I found something very interesting, and I'm not going to talk to you about all the prime ministers uh, of this period. Um, let me uh, point out to you that uh, we do not have the name of Joseph found anywhere in Egypt. You know, that's too bad, actually, that we, that we don't. Uh, but uh, we don't. We don't have the name of Joseph from anywhere. And the name that he's given by the Egyptians in the Bible, the name Zaphnath Paniah, we're not too sure of what that is in Egyptian. So we may have the name of Joseph somewhere and don't know it, but we can't prove that we've got the name of Joseph uh, anywhere. Well, anyway, some of these scholars were looking for these prime ministers, and they found that during the time of King Sesostris III, who would be the king during the famine years, king right after Sesostris II, um, a man in the 1970s found a number of prime ministers that served in this period. I don't think either one of them is Joseph. He found two names. But one of them was a fellow by the name of Knumhotep. Knumhotep. Now that is uh, spelled uh, K-H-N-U-M-H-O-T-E-P. In case you're interested. But he found this guy uh, by the name of Knumhotep. Now, he found that this man served as prime minister under Sesostris III. Now, I don't think he's Joseph. But here is what he missed, uh, which I discovered about a year ago, and I got an article coming out on this in the near future in one of the evangelical uh, journals. This man, of all things, held both of these titles that we're talking about here. He was prime minister of Egypt, and he was also chief steward of the king. He was both. He held both jobs. Now, that is an amazing coincidence. This is the only time this happens in all of Egyptian history. There are no other examples. I searched and searched and could find none. Now, as I said, I don't think he's Joseph. But what it does show us is that the king at that time, Sesostris III, had uh, perhaps remembered how Joseph had served so effectively in those two jobs. And so he says, that was a good idea. Let's try that one again. And so this man, Knumhotep, holds both of the titles, chief steward of the king and prime minister. It fits the Bible perfectly, and it only happens this one time, right in the correct period. In fact, probably within about 20 years of Joseph's retirement uh, from his own jobs. So very, very significant uh, development, very uh, significant thing to see. Well, while we're on the subject of Joseph receiving these uh, rewards and, and all of this, uh, you'll notice also he's given a new uh, wife. Well, a wife. He didn't have a wife before. But a woman named Asenath, and she's the daughter of an Egyptian priest. Now, what is interesting is that that priest is a priest of the city of On, spelled O-N in your Bibles. Actually, that is the city that the Greeks called Heliopolis, Sun City. And uh, I don't think any uh, meaningful archaeology will ever be done there because Heliopolis is... Uh, Today, it's Cairo International Airport, so it's all concrete runways. I don't think anything ever is going to come of that. But what is interesting is that this is a great honor, and that father of this young lady is priest at the city of On, which means he's the priest of the god Ra, the great sun god of ancient Egypt. And that means that, again, this is a time when native Egyptians are ruling Egypt. This is not a time when foreigners are ruling the country. Very significant thing to, to remember. 
Now, also, besides receiving a new wife, Joseph also receives a chariot to ride. And we're told that it's uh, the second chariot in the country. That's a significant fact. License plate number two. You know, presumably, the king has license plate number one. Now you say, why is that so significant? Here's why. The chariot, as such, did not even come into use for the Egyptian army until about 400 years or 300 years, something like that, after the days of Joseph. And uh, we're talking here, of course, in this passage, uh, in the Joseph story, not about military chariots, but about a chariot just for general transportation purposes. And the fact that the Bible tells us that there are only two, you know, this is the chariot, uh, the second chariot, and the king has number one, that shows us that there aren't very many chariots in the country. And that is exactly right uh, to what we know of Egyptian history in that period of time. By the way, uh, it used to be said that they didn't even know the horse during this period. People said, ah, how can Joseph have a chariot when the horse wasn't even known? But then they discovered at a big fort in Egypt, at a place called Buhen, B-U-H-E-N, way down on the southern border of the country. They were digging there uh, some years back, and they found horse skeletons buried there. So they said, oops, well, I guess they did have horses. So, again, uh, the Bible is uh, correct. So Joseph gets all of these things. But before we conclude today, I want to show you one other thing of great uh, interest and great significance. I don't know if you realize it, but there are a lot of archaeological excavations with great biblical importance going on all the time in places like Egypt. You know, it's a sad thing, I think, that the news media never tells you about any of this stuff. You never get to hear about any discoveries that really are bearing on the scriptures. You just never hear about them at all. And the only place you can go to find this stuff is to read obscure archaeological publications, uh, usually written in German rather than English, and uh, you have to put together the biblical connections. But there has been a lot of work in northern Egypt in the last 15 or 20 years, and I want to show you some of these uh, places, show you a couple of places of biblical significance. On this uh, overlay, you see the um, Nile Delta, the region of northern Egypt. Now, in the Bible, when you read about Egypt, particularly in the early verses of the book of Exodus, you read about the two cities where the Hebrews were in bondage. You remember those places? Pithom and Ramses. They're mentioned in Exodus chapter 1, verse 11, for example. Uh, Pithom and Ramses, two cities that are up there in the Nile Delta. Now, for some years, we've been pretty sure we know where Pithom is. Uh, it is right here on the map at a place called Tel Mascuta. Tel Mascuta. It's a Wheaton College excavation. Um, so a Christian team has excavated it. That's the city of Pithom in the Bible. But for years, nobody has been real sure where the city of Ramses was located. Now, uh, the city of Ramses, if you read some of the older books, they're going to give you wrong information. They're going to tell you about a city called Tanis, which is way up uh, probably not even on this map. It's way up in the, the, the corner of the delta, one of those areas up there. But Tanis, they'll say, that was the city of Ramses. Well, it wasn't. In Beginning in about 1976, 1977, a man by the name of Manfred Betak came along. And if you're taking notes, it's B-I-E-T-A-K. Betak is an archaeologist from the University of Vienna in Austria. And he's a brilliant excavator. He's not a Christian man so far as I'm aware, but he's a brilliant excavator. 
And Betok had looked longingly at this city right here on the map called Tel El Daba. Tel El Daba. That's just spelled uh, T-E-L-L-E-L-D-A-B-A. Nothing complicated about the name. But this is a huge city. It's a gigantic city. You know, all buried. A big pile of rubble. And nobody had ever thoroughly excavated it. And so Betok began to excavate this, and to his amazement, he found out that this was indeed the biblical city of Ramses. Uh, they found tons of inscriptional material there, named, uh, which named the city as Ramses. So this is the place where the Israelites spent a great deal of time in bondage. And I've got to tell you that since the discovery of that city, our knowledge of the bondage of the Hebrews in Egypt has been revolutionized. That's a whole other subject, which I won't have time to get into this morning. But our knowledge of what Canaanite and Israelite people uh, were like, what kind of pottery they used, uh, what kind of buildings they had, all of that kind of thing is now becoming known. So far, we've not come up with any written material that mentions them as, as Israelites. But this is one of the places where the Jews were serving in bondage. So lots of fascinating um, Information coming from that city right there of Tel El Daba. Well, as the city was excavated, Professor Betok came across this particular place. Now, I don't know how um, good you are at reading archaeological plans. Probably you haven't got much experience with that. But I just want to show you a couple things here. What this building is, is a palace. Uh, if you look at all of this up here, this is all a palace. Now, this is not a royal palace. This is a building in which some high official of government lived. Perhaps after his retirement from government. Because uh, in the Middle Kingdom, and this is a, a Middle Kingdom building, in the Middle Kingdom, this city was not the capital. So he couldn't be here and, and serve in government. So probably retired. Now, look at something else. Here's the building. Down here is a garden region with tombs in it. Now, that right away is unusual because that's not Egyptian. The Egyptians did not bury people in the garden in the backyard. Hope you don't either, by the way. Um, but anyway, um, this garden out behind the palace has all these graves in it. And so they began to excavate these graves. Now, I want to call your attention to this one right here. See this uh, structure? I'm going to show you a close-up of this in a second. This is uh, the main grave. Uh, the others are secondary, purely. But that one's the main grave uh, found in this cemetery. And it was obviously the grave of the man who owned this particular palace. And here is uh, what it looked like. Not a very complicated thing. Uh, no hieroglyphic inscriptions, no paintings, nothing like that. But notice what it is. It's a, a, a square chamber here. And then there's a little chapel out here with a tunnel connecting the two of them. And as I said, this has to be the tomb. It's the biggest, most impressive tomb of all of them in this garden. This has to be the tomb of the person who owned this palace and lived in this palace. Now, there are no inscriptions, no paintings, but they found in that tunnel connecting the chapel and the tomb, they found a statue of the person that had owned the tomb. Now, this statue has been pulverized. I mean, somebody got a sledgehammer and did a number on this thing. They just 
destroyed it completely. And all that are left today of this are a few fragments. But what is interesting is that uh, it would have been a statue much bigger than life size. This would have been a statue one and a half times as tall as a human being. Now, that may not mean much to you, but in ancient Egypt, you've got to be important to have a bigger than life size statue. If you're an ordinary official, you get a life size statue, if you're lucky. Uh, but usually it's kings and big shots and so on who have statues that are bigger than life size. Now, there isn't much left of the statue, but I want to show you the head of the statue. Notice the facial features are completely gone. But I want to call your attention to two things about this particular statue. First of all, something you can't see on this diagram because it's black and white, but the color of the skin was yellow. Now again, that may not mean much to you, but it does mean something to students of Egyptian art and archaeology. It's a man's statue, and normally if it's an Egyptian man, you're going to find brownish or reddish colored skin. And when they give a man yellow skin, that has one very distinctive meaning. It means that that person was from Syria, Palestine. It means that that person is not a native Egyptian. And the statue has yellow skin. Now, the second thing to note about this is the hairstyle that you see there. Now, you'll notice it's very distinctive. You know what we call that? Uh, probably we're not being very imaginative. We call it the mushroom hairstyle you know, for obvious reasons. looks like the cap of a mushroom. The mushroom hairstyle was a hairstyle that was only worn by men from up in Syria, Palestine. And it is a man's hairstyle. It's not a woman's hairstyle. So the color of the skin and the hair here indicate that this person was from Syria, Palestine. So here we find a man who was from the land of Canaan who became important, retired, and lived in this palace and was buried in this tomb. Now, no mummy was found in this tomb uh, or anything like that. The body had been uh, removed or lost or whatever. And, of course, um, as you think about Joseph, remember when he died, he gave instructions that his body was to be taken out at the time of the Exodus. Now, there is that possibility. I don't know that we'll ever be able to, to demonstrate or to prove it, but there is the possibility, and my friend John Bimson in England, an archaeologist who's a Christian man, thinks that this is the tomb of Joseph. Now, as I said, you'll never hear about anything like that in the, in the news media, but it could well be that here this discovery made about a year or two years ago that uh, this discovery is actually the tomb of Joseph. Now, I won't, I won't claim that. I won't insist on that at all. I don't know. Uh, but what I do know is this. Here's what I think is most significant about this discovery. It shows us that just exactly at the time that the Bible would have us believe that Joseph is in Egypt, just at that exact time, a person who was an Asiatic rose to high power and retired and had a big palace and was died there uh, and died and was buried there. So it shows us that uh, indeed the account of Joseph fits, again, exactly into an Egyptian background. Well, there are many other examples that we could show you. Uh, time does not permit us to go any further with uh, all of this this morning, but as I uh, mentioned to you earlier, I want you to be sure to be here uh, on uh, Wednesday as we continue to uh, look at uh, uh, all of this and as we take a look at some slides. But uh, I want to, once again, thank you for your kind attention. And at this point, we'll call on Professor Bookman to come and lead us in closing prayer.